Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzdrover. On today's show, how will tax reform impact tech? We've heard a lot of talk about tax reform after a failed attempt by Republicans and the president to undo Obamacare and replace it. Um, And after that, we heard a lot in the news about how they're moving on to things like tax reform and infrastructure. In tax reform, we haven't had a major overhaul of our code in decades. And uh, now there's kind of a cliche that it needs to happen every 36 years because it seems like that's the only uh, amount of time that leads to reform. So here we are, you know, kind of at that stage and uh, everyone's talking about it. So I've got a guest here to talk about what this big undertaking will mean specifically for the uh, tech companies and the tech issues that we talk about on this show. So joining me is James Lucier, Managing Director at Capital Alpha Partners, a Washington, D.C.-based policy research firm. James, thanks for joining the show. Well, it's great to be here, Evan. It reminds me of those thrilling days of yesteryear when I was a young man sitting in my ringside seat, actually in the peanut gallery looking at tax reform in 1986 and thinking, wow, when I grow up, maybe I can have a role in tax reform too. <laughs> so here we it's are. It's been a long time. It only took 30 years, and, and that, that's exciting. You know, I think when you wait for something, it, it just makes it even better. So um, 35,000 foot view, you know, the, just the big broad question, we're talking about tax reform, you know, lowering the rates, broadening the base, eliminating BS deductions, all this stuff. What does this mean for technology? Well, it means a lot of things. It actually means a huge opportunity for technology, but some risks. And to put this in perspective, you've got to look at the U.S. tax code, which you can date back to the Civil War, to the advent of the income tax under Woodrow Wilson, to the expansion of the income tax after World War I, to the post-war era, the tax code of 1953. The bottom line, though, is that our corporate tax system used to focus on companies making stuff in the U.S., and maybe they sent physical widgets abroad. We also had a border tariff on physical widgets coming in, and that was actually the bulk of the government's revenue for most of U.S. history. The big problem we have today is that this model of taxation, where everything is about widgets that you make in America, doesn't fit a world where, as Alan Greenspan likes to say, uh, GDP has become intangible. It's become conceptual. The thing that differentiates tech companies from physical uh, manufacturing, from bricks and mortar industry, if you will, is that much of the product is conceptual. That is that you can use an idea, you can use a software program, you can use a drug formula, you can use a lot of things based on intellectual property that you can transport almost anywhere in an email, if you will, or perhaps even through, uh, through telepathic communication. <laughs> the point is there's no physical medium, no physical vehicle, no specific tie to uh, geography. And when you think about intellectual property or when you think of services, whether it's financial services or advertising services, any type of professional service, that's another thing that doesn't have the traditional nexus to widgets, to things, to a physical postal address. And that means that our tax system really isn't optimized to cover that type of activity, which really represents more than half of the economy right now, and which also represents the uh, dominant pattern of global trade. Back at the end of World War II, the United States was literally the 
the only industrial economy left intact. We had our manufacturing basis. We had the great arsenal of democracy in my father's hometown of Detroit. Yeah, we had the benefit of kind of not having to fight any battles other than Pearl Harbor on our own shores. So as our uh, somewhat industrialized uh, friends across the pond were picking up the scraps after uh, horrific events, we were really the only game in town. Well, we were, and that was great. And that's why the U.S. tax system taxes companies on their global income. Precisely because, Evan, you hit the nail on the head. We were the only game in town. And so why not tax U.S. companies on their worldwide income? But of course, so much has changed since then, but our tax code hasn't. Our tax code hasn't. Other countries did have the benefit of being blown up. And they did have the opportunity to rebuild their tax codes using more modern economic principles from the 1970s onward. So they have tax systems that are designed to deal with the global economy, whereas ours aren't. And uh, since the U.S. started cutting corporate tax rates, they've cut their corporate tax rates much, much lower than ours. We actually have the world's highest corporate tax rate. Certainly in any industrialized nation, we have the world's highest tax rate. And the only one even close to us is the Central African Republic, since those... Good company to be in. Indeed. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that you you bring up the highest tax rate in the world, because I think uh, most people assume that giant corporations are not paying the highest rate, that because of the, the nature of the tax code, you can deduct this and that, and that your effective tax rate could even be close to zero. And it's a great talking point for populism, you know, that all oh, these big companies, they don't even pay any taxes. I'm paying 35% of my income. They don't pay anything. So despite the fact that our tax code isn't set up for the modern day, as you said, Companies are doing pretty well in the tech economy. You know, I would say it's a bright spot in our economy. You know, uh, we've had so much innovation. America kind of dominates in this area. Five of the top 10 technology firms are are here. Uh, the rest are in China. And that's not really a fair comparison because the government is so heavily involved in industry over there. But how is the current tax code benefiting tech? Well, God bless the tech industry, because as you say, they really are the core of the modern U.S. economy. And I wouldn't say that the tech industry necessarily benefits from the tax code or is exploiting it. But um, this idea of um, intangible property certainly works to their benefit in a couple of ways. Perhaps most significantly, though, of these several ways is the idea of deferral. That is that if you make income overseas, yes, we do officially tax it at 35%. But this tax is effectively optional. You don't pay it until you repatriate the dividend, until you make a payment back to the home office. So So as long as the money stays in Ireland, for example, which is often given as an example because it's got a low corporate tax rate and a lot of American tech companies have uh, workers there, manufacturing there. Um, And if you keep that money in a bank somewhere in Ireland, it's not going to get taxed at 35%. That's correct. In fact, it won't get taxed at 35% just about anywhere. Um, I believe, was it Mr. Ottolini at IBM? No, it was, a, it was an Intel CEO who was explaining why he would never build a silicon fab in the United States. And it was because the U.S. tax code is, uh, is um, so onerous and it would make no sense whatever. In fact, on a different subject, I do a lot of my work in energy now. I could talk about energy taxation and This illustrates the point that uh, we have a booming uh, shale oil industry, shale gas. It could support all types of manufacturing. But Morgan Stanley actually did a CEO survey to find out whether this oil and gas bonanza would turn into manufacturing. 
And this CEO survey came back uniformly negative, that global companies would rather locate their manufacturing activities in Mexico instead of the U.S. Right. Because the tax system there was so much friendlier. Yeah, so there is this um, general perception that corporate tax reform is good. And part of that is because the tax rate is high and companies have made that argument about repatriation where they say, look, I'm not bringing my money back into the United States. If it's being taxed at 35%, that's ridiculous. Maybe if you were to simplify it lower to 20, then we can talk. Um, But you brought up before the show and at the beginning of the show that there's a big risk here. And that while on the surface, it might seem like this is everyone's issue, right? That every company in America can get behind this, Democrats and Republicans, yada, yada. Of course, it's not that simple. But what is what do you see as the risk? How could reforming our tax code actually undermine technology? I wouldn't say undermine, but there are definitely pluses and minuses. The problem we have with domestically focused U.S. companies right now is that they are paying a nosebleed high tax rate on everything they do, Sure, they get a lot of deductions, but the bottom line is that they can't shield their taxable income from the U.S. system. And uh, everyone agrees that this corporate tax rate needs to come down lower. Now, with regard to internationally focused companies in generally, because they have this option for deferral, because they can do other things involving a multi-company business or multi-country business structure, International companies as a rule, and I'm not just talking about tech companies, the distinction between domestic companies and multinational companies is pretty distinct. The multinational companies generally pay lower effective tax rates because they can, and I'll use this word, they can game the international tax system. So in a tax reform that's supposed to broaden the base and lower the statutory rate that applies to everyone, the relative winners are going to be the people that start with a high effective tax rate. But the people that already have a low effective tax rate could be losers. And that's not because they've done something bad or there's something wrong with it. It's just that uh, when you average out the system, the high averages come down and the low averages come up. Yeah, And of course, with uh, President Trump in the White House and part of his whole election rhetoric was was about this problem where there are companies that tend to invest their money in the United States. Um, and then there are companies that are overseas doing whatever. And, um, you know, maybe at a pure free market level, you say there's nothing wrong with that. We're part of a global economy. People should park their money where it makes the most sense and benefits the most people and shareholders and whatever. But clearly there is this, you know, America first attitude coming from the White House. And is that part of the risk for tech that because for a while they've been able to avoid Uh, and not illegally, just using the legal tools they have, not get taxed at a high rate. Is there any scenario under which a company like Google or Facebook or these like big software companies don't lose out on tax reform? Well, you've got to look at the best available options. And right now, the problem these companies have, as I said, is their low effective tax rate relative to everyone else. And uh, this involves uh, the international tax system. It involves the way that you can Uh, domicile your intellectual property in low-tax locations. So looking at tax reform all at 2014, uh, I'm talking about the House of Representatives tax reform proposal put out by David Camp about three years ago now. That's something that was actually rather adversarial for tech companies because it said, look, you know, this international tax code nonsense, we're basically going to look through it. Uh, The 
uh, part of the tax code dealing with international taxation and something called anti-base erosion uh, was outlined in David Camp's uh, Option C. And what this Option C did was it uh, eliminated subpart F treatment for intellectual property. Basically what that's saying is that we're going to tax your patents at a fairly high rate, at least 20%, no matter where they are in the world. Mm. We're going to give you de facto a worldwide minimum tax. And then on top of that, we're going to police what you can do with your corporate structure. So you can't organize your company the way that you think is best for your business. You've got to organize it the way we think that makes sense for our tax purposes. And then there would be other items, too, pertaining to um, strict rules for transfer pricing and other things that are necessary if you're trying to figure out how to make companies that don't pay a lot of tax in the U.S. pay much more tax, albeit through police state tactics. So the companies on the other side of that equation, the ones who are more domestic focused, so think about maybe your telecommunications companies, uh, your Verizons, your um, your cable companies, they tend to employ a lot more people in the United States, and that's because they're dealing with infrastructure. So obviously, you've got people uh, laying pipes, deploying broadband, going from 4G to 5G, whereas software naturally is more borderless, and you can have your office in Ireland or India or wherever. Um, would those companies then have a lot to gain uh, relative to maybe a software company because they're already paying the super high tax rate? Yeah, I th- said at the beginning that I was going to avoid calling specific companies out by name. But oh, that's I will, okay. I did it. <laughs> I will call one out. I mean, Verizon. I mean, Verizon has the highest CapEx budget of any company in the U.S. And when we say CapEx, we essentially mean like infrastructure spending. Infrastructure. Right? We're, well, we're talking about the entire physical plant. But yes, you could think of it as infrastructure since what we're talking about is switches, yeah, uh, fiber, wireless towers, tunnels, yeah. and of course, wireless towers, a yeah. very big item these days. So um, they pay a very high effective tax rate. They don't have a lot of international business. And uh, anything that lowers the tax rate and that gives Verizon the equivalent of permanent bonus depreciation or what we call expensing treatment of capital investments, it's great. In fact, Verizon may actually be one of the best examples of a domestically focused U.S. company, heavy investor, heavy spending and infrastructure, not a lot of international business, but they'd be a huge winner in tax reform because their rate is so high. And also because the U.S. tax code, unless you consider bonus depreciation, but without bonus depreciation, the U.S. tax code is actually not that kind to uh, physical investment. Right. And you want to incentivize that. I mean, no matter what, look, I mean, I get that there are a lot of people that like companies like software companies because they get their services for free. And when they think about companies like Verizon, they think about maybe a unfortunate phone call with your customer service representative. But Infrastructure investment is a good thing. I mean, yeah, it, so it creates jobs. It's you know you want to incentivize it, and if you can't deduct that from your taxes, then then that's less of an incentive to build more infrastructure, to upgrade your network, to employ more people. Right, and if you think of Verizon or if you think of cable companies, also big winners from tax reform, they pay very high effective tax rates. Again, their local businesses, maybe they also pay discriminatory property taxes because of their ancient antecedents in. Uh, cost of service regulation. But in general, telecom could be a big winner from tax reform. Now, I mean, of course, if, if you're just, if you want the best outcome for everyone and you want, whether it's technological infrastructure or software or intellectual property or, you know, creativity, I mean, you want to create a tax system that 
that benefits everyone, that benefits consumers, that benefits the treasury, that benefits companies, um, that fosters innovation. So how do we get a system where we're not talking about how one side loses and another side wins? I mean, that we don't want this to be a zero-sum game. We want everyone to benefit. So how do you craft a tax code that is something that a software company could get behind and an infrastructure company and companies in the non-tech sector too? Well, the ideal principle of a tech code is neutrality, which is especially important in a rapidly evolving arena like technology. So you want a tax code that makes no difference whatever to the type of business you're in, the type of legal organization you have, investing now, investing later, any number of factors. It should all be neutral and the same, and it should have uniform impact on all industries across the board. The problem with the tax code historically, though, is that uh, if you take a tax model that may be 100 years old or to be generous, let's say 75 years old in the case of the U.S. tax code, there's a lot of evolution and change that happens. So we just add new sections of the tax code, but often adding those sections on only compounds the uh, distortion. We would have the opportunity now to do something different, and I think that's what Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady have tried to do with their border-adjusted tax, have tax on U.S. income only, make this uh, a territorial system, which I like to think of as the Las Vegas system. You know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You (laughs) tax companies on their U.S. income and um, uh, allow income outside the U.S. to be taxed by other countries where it occurs, but you don't tax it here. And the border adjustment tax is, of course, controversial. Um, Whenever you talk about lowering the tax rate, the obvious question is, how do you pay for it? And uh, what, as you said, what the president, what Paul Ryan have suggested is this border adjustment tax. Uh, Companies disagree about this. In general, would how would border adjustment tax impact a tech company? I mean, thinking about things like the, the infrastructure investment and how a lot of the assets that tech companies have are intellectual property and not physical things. Is border adjustment tax a winner for tech, a loser for tech, or something in between? Well, it's potentially a big winner for tech. Um, I think that after the principle of neutrality for tax reform, you also have to take the long-term view. What benefits companies, what benefits the country as a whole from a long-term steady state perspective? So any tax reform is going to have transition costs or adjustment effects that you need to take into account. But the BAT, despite the controversy with retailers who are worried about uh, upward pressure on prices for the first couple of quarters after we implement this right. thing. Right. I mean, there will be a little bit of a shock and yeah, people will I go mean, to the store and ever things will cost that, more. Ever notice that they have stores in Europe? <laughs> you can actually buy electronics there. Yeah. Uh, they have oil refineries in Europe, too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not as if the retail industry isn't an industry with problems of very thin margins, online competition you name it. But uh, the reality is that they're paralyzed with fear over an adjustment, not something that's a permanent apocalypse for their business. Okay. And I think you could take the same perspective with IP companies, whether they're tech or whether they're pharma or um, even entertainment. Uh, Anybody who creates a stream of revenue or royalties from overseas The way the border tax adjustment works is that you apply what amounts to a uniform consumption tax of 20% on everything that comes into the U.S., and you rebate the tax on everything that goes out the U.S. Effectively, anything that you sell to a foreign purchaser, anything that's consumed in a foreign country, 
is rebated from your tax. And this means that inside the U.S. you have a domestic consumption tax. Everyone pays the same tax. It treats all industries equally. And this might well mean that tech companies pay more tax in the U.S. because uh, many of their royalty streams that have been coming into the U.S. and I won't say tax-free, but which have been shielded from tax in one way or another, those would be taxed, that certain strategies known as income stripping, for instance, wouldn't work anymore. So whatever you do in the U.S., you're going to pay a 20% corporate tax. And for some of these folks, that is going to be a big tax increase. And yet, it's still not 35, right? Right. But the flip side is that uh, once you have your patent, your formula, your software, your copyrighted work, and you sell that in Germany or in Ireland or in Swaziland or in China, then all of those revenues would be considered outside U.S. jurisdiction and outside taxation. So the great opportunity for tech companies here, uh, speaking generically, and I'm speaking about all intellectual property-based industries in the, in the same context, that yes, you may pay more in the U.S., but you could really do globally because you could make a lot of money overseas, and then you could not only invest that money overseas, but you could also reinvest it in the U.S. You could reinvest it in your R&D here. Yeah, and that would be potentially beneficial for innovation. Now, um, I want to close out the show talking about the effect on consumers, but there is this one uh, ongoing issue that might be impacted by this as well. Um, tech companies have been having problems with Europe in mm -hmm. general. Um, part of it could be attributed to just jealousy that Europe doesn't have the vibrant tech sector. And we've done episodes talking about how they have different privacy regulations. And there's all sorts of factors that lead to potentially an innovation friendly environment in the US versus Europe. But we've seen a backlash, right? And um, companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, right? You know, some of these companies we mentioned who have offices overseas, You've had the EU going after them with antitrust, uh, calling out the U.S. Treasury Department saying they're not being taxed, they're hiding from us. And under the Obama administration, you actually had a strong defense of the companies. You had the Obama administration saying to the EU, hey, knock it off with this backdoor taxation, whether you're doing it through antitrust or whatever, you're just trying to get revenue from companies. If tax reform were to be done in a good way, kind of the way that you've described it with neutrality and uh, and whatever... Would that change the dynamic with Europe over this problem of them feeling like U.S. companies are avoiding taxation? Those are all very good questions. <laughs> I would agree with you on Europe's view toward U.S. technology uh, and our tech industry. Their policy is, you've got it, we want it, we'll take it. <laughs> I would disagree with you on the Obama administration. The Obama administration did push back on uh, some of the antitrust assaults on Google. But I don't think they really helped with the taxation issue at all. In fact, the Obama administration basically aided and abetted the European-led uh, BEPS regime, the um, movement to deal with something called base erosion and profit shifting a bureaucratic acronym for tax avoidance. Right. And this was an effort by Europe to specifically target U.S. companies, whether they be tech companies like Amazon or Apple, or even consumer companies like uh, Starbucks oh. or Amazon. All of these people had enormous tax problems in Europe uh, because, again, the European policy is you got it, we want it. 
America, if you aren't going to include this in your tax base, this revenue is going to be our tax base, and we're coming after it. So I don't think you can fundamentally change that European perspective, but you could certainly uh, make the U.S. tax system more defensible. So a big advantage for U.S. companies in any kind of tax reform is going to be having a U.S. backstop or a U.S. deterrent against random and rapacious taxation by European governments. So we've talked about how companies might be affected. And of course, you know, the, the most important thing is what this means for consumers and whether tax reform will benefit consumers. And um, we've seen a lot of consumer benefit from the tech sector. You know, we've gone from 1G to 4G. We're now talking about 5G and potentially tax reform. If you allow Verizon to expense those small cells that they're going to be building for 5G, that could be good. Um but um, beyond just that example, you know, how do you see tax reform impacting the everyday lives of Americans? And, you know, you could use tech as an example, but you could also expand on it. I mean, what do you see as the consumer benefit or detriment if we get this right or if we get it wrong? Well, I would focus on one thing, and that is wages and income. Ultimately, tax reform is all about wages and income for ordinary people. And there's no reason to advance a theory. I mean, this is amply demonstrated in the economic literature that the big winners from cuts in corporate taxation and from cuts on taxes that apply to a capital investment are in fact the employees, the laborers. So what I think we want to do is come up with a tax system that is simple, it promotes economic growth, but really keeps that wages and income focus there. And um, as long as you avoid discriminatory taxes, as long as you avoid special excise taxes on telecom, as long as you avoid other oddities, I think that a tax reform that provides for solid income growth for consumers, many of whom haven't seen this since the 1980s. Right. That's is, a big talking point. And it was part of the election where, yes, we're in an economic recovery. And yes, the stock market is really high. And yes, things are getting cheaper. But wages seem to just stagnate. Wages stagnate. And, you know, there's a lot of the United States that is not San Francisco, Washington, D.C., or New York City. Well, we're going to have uh, to just let that sink in there for listeners that there is a country other than the coasts, uh, just, you know, bombshell there. <laughs> these people need jobs. They need income. They need jobs and income to buy tech products. Yes. So um, I'm going to ask you to do something totally unreasonable and feel free not to, but what do you think the prospects for this actually happening are? I mean, you you jokingly referred to how one day you want to grow up and be able to see tax reform, you know, 30 years ago, and then it was 30 years before that when we actually looked at this again. I mean, it seems like we've randomly decided that 30 years is a good time frame for tax reform. But uh, do you see this happening? I mean, healthcare didn't go so well for the president and Congress. I mean, do you see better prospects for tax reform? Well, I've got to say that I am deeply disappointed by the healthcare result. And I think the same gang of two dozen morons who took down health care <laughs> have already done incalculable damage to tax reform as well. That's fired. Been on something of an emotional roller coaster ride uh, since the election. I certainly wasn't expecting Trump to win. I don't think many others were. But all of a sudden, we have a president and a Congress who together really want to do tax reform. But tax reform's a hard thing, and you need not only focus, but you need to move pretty quickly. Historically, it tends to happen in the first year of a president's administration. 
a lot of the big, bold tax reform we were hoping for depended on the ability of Paul Ryan to at least put a model out there that people could follow. Now, though, you have even worse Republican dysfunction than before. And I'm not saying this from a partisan perspective. It's just analytic. These guys can't deliver. They can't get anything done. They can't agree on anything. And so in my business, I put odds on tax reform. And uh, I had been thinking of an 80% probability that we see tax reform done. I thought we'd see tax reform done basically by the end of the year in time for the Christmas shopping season. And now I've become more pessimistic. I think that uh, it's going to take much longer. It could take until early next year. And I think that whatever tax reform we do get is in great danger of being too trivial to make much difference. Or it could be a complete failure. All right. Well, on that cheerful note, uh, this was a very fascinating discussion. I really appreciate you walking us through this. And I think uh, anyone who listens to this podcast will have a much clearer idea of what tax reform means specifically for tech. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if tech is a major focus of the debate, because there are so many other industries, obviously, that will be impacted by this. But uh, I want to thank my guest, James Lucier. Sorry, I had your title up here a second ago. Oh, there it is. Managing Director at Capital Alpha Partners, a Washington, D.C.-based policy research firm. Uh, Go ahead and Google Capital Alpha Partners if you're interested in finding out more. James, thanks so much for joining the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Maybe in 35 years, we'll be doing another episode on tax reform. Uh, Find this podcast in the iTunes store where you can leave us a review because we'll help others find the show. And uh, my lovely boss, Baron Soka, wanted me to point out that even if you just want to drop us a one sentence review that would really help us too we don't want to make this too difficult for you uh but we'll catch you next time thanks for listening the tech policy podcast is produced and distributed by tech freedom a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in washington dc to learn more about our work make a tax deductible donation or find other episodes find us online at techfreedom.org